Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, a production of neonewstoday.com. I'm your host, Dylan Grabowski. In this episode, I sat down and spoke with Rusty Matvey, the Chief Strategy Officer at Galaxy. Galaxy is a social marketplace that connects creators with consumers through curated content, communication forums, and digital collectibles. Ultimately, the vision for the team is to empower meaningful and fulfilling fan experiences. In this conversation, Rusty and I discussed the balance between being a venture capitalist and an owner-operator, looking back on the multi-decade development of the metaverse and its forthcoming resurgence, how good UX should lead the development of a dApp, the network characteristics that social media platforms look at when choosing which blockchain to build on, and much more. Just a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens, that nothing should be taken as financial advice, and that the host or guests may hold tokens discussed in any given episode. With that said, I really enjoyed chatting with Rusty, and I hope you enjoy the conversation too. Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast. Today we're joined by Rusty Matviv, the Chief Strategy Officer at Galaxy, which is an open social marketplace for creators that allows them to connect with collection holders in a brand new way. How are you doing today, Rusty? Doing well. Thanks, Dylan. Good morning. How are you? Good morning, GM. It's Friday. I'm, I'm ready for the weekend. I'm excited, but equally excited to have this conversation. So let's not get too ahead of ourselves. Something that I found really interesting just jumping in was your background. You have a really cool mixture of investing, entrepreneurial endeavors, and software development. So could you maybe just share your long and winding road to how you ended up at Galaxy? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. And again, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, I, I, we, we like to say, I like to say that there's no, you know, no entrepreneur's journey. It's, it's, it's not a linear journey, right? It, it's always zigzagging up and down. And I'm sure you know that. I've had a definitely a winding road to get here specifically. I think I've, you know, I've really been in the entrepreneur mindset since I was really a kid. Uh, my parents were, you know, immigrants, uh, well, I, first generation essentially. So look, growing up and seeing like, you know, my dad trying to start a business and that kind of stuff really kind of ingrained that in me from a pretty early age. So I think I, you know, all the summers, I would always try to sell something or do something. Even in high school, we like made a board game for our town, like all this random stuff. So in college, I remember uh, a friend of mine, you know, we had like a software company or a company, I barely want to call it a software company that was essentially optimizing mobile websites and trying to help, you know, trying to help people convert to, to mobile web and some other stuff like that. And I remember we got a contract that was like $110,000. I was like, that's it. You know, I'm dropping out of college. Like this was my moment, right? This, this was our, <laughs> this was our like Steve Jobs, Bill Gates type of thing. We're out of here. Like, and, and you know, obviously I didn't do that, which is a good thing. I, I finished and graduated, but that was like an aha moment of like, holy crap, you know, we can actually make some serious money sort of without, without anything. And I was not a graduate. I wasn't working for a big company. It was just my friend and, and myself. So that was pretty cool. I started a bunch of different companies along the way after college, some IOT, some consumer stuff, et cetera. It landed me in a pretty interesting and, you know, different place that I thought I'd never go, which was the, you know, the Middle East and uh, had some business going on again in the IOT smart city space, really interesting experiences. Got back to New York a few years after that, and I was pitching to, funny enough, now the, the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, but he was the borough president of Brooklyn at the time. So we did a, a pilot program with, with the city of Brooklyn. And then all of a sudden, I found myself in front of Madison Square Garden, pitching, you know, again, my smart venue, smart city platform. 
And they kind of made me an offer I couldn't refuse, which was they were starting up a, uh, a venture firm, kind of. Didn't know what it was exactly about. Now, it's, it's it was the origins of what's MSG Sphere. Uh, if, if your audience has not heard of that, I definitely encourage to Google it. It's the future of entertainment. It's this venue, the future of venues, if you will. And again, it was at the time, it was a circle on a napkin that Jim Dolan had, had drawn. And his his mandate to us was, if it exists, we're not interested, which is like awesome to say, definitely difficult to accomplish. Um, this is in mid or late 2016. And so I uh, spent a few years there, three years there, building up what is now just now coming out, which is again, MSG Sphere. So made a bunch of investments across the way. That's kind of when I jumped over to the investment side from being an entrepreneur. But I really still got to operate, which was awesome. Like MSG was a nice brand. There was a sandbox to play in. So you, didn't, you weren't just financially investing, which would have been you know, no offense to anybody, kind of boring for me, at least. I'm, I'm an operator and a, and a founder. So we got to really like play with our stuff, right? We're meaning like if we're, if we're going to invest something, we can actually test it out. And, and, you know, I think we own like seven venues. So it was a really great experience. Loved every moment of that. And then I found myself, you know, kind of zooming forward here, long, long answer to uh, working with the co-founder of Galaxy, which is the NBA player by the name of Spencer Dinwiddie, who plays currently for the Brooklyn Nets. Really, really smart guy had a vision. He was trying to, I was trying to help him launch a venture fund essentially, but that was right as COVID was hitting. And he had this other thing he was doing, which was securitizing or tokenizing his MBA contract, which I got to kind of see firsthand and, and help with a little bit. And then met the other co-founder of Galaxy, his, uh, his longtime friend, Solo Cisse. And essentially they had this vision for Galaxy, what is now Galaxy and, uh, broke me in and I was like, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to help out. And kind of, that's how I got here. I'm still investing actively and still operating, which is what I love to do a little bit of ADD. Sorry for the very long-winded answer, but that's that's the short version, believe it or not, of how, how I got here at the moment. I've been full-time and I went YOLO crypto in 2018 and quit a previous career to go full-time into the space. And I wear multiple hats so I can completely commiserate with the million directions that you got pulled in, but but how they all ended up in, in this one place. And I couldn't quite remember why I remembered Spencer Dinwiddie's name. And when you brought up that he tokenized his contract, everything kind of clicked for me, which is silly because that was a huge deal to me. I personally found a lot of parts of your journey very intriguing. But for me personally, I said that I quit a previous career. I was an urban planner. So your Connected City platform really went off on the radar for me. And it sounds like that work is what took you to the Middle East and then back to New York. So just to kind of scratch my my inner nerd itch, can you just share a little bit about what the Connected City platform was? I think that like smart cities and IoT, they have somewhat of a connection with a lot of Web3 projects. So even if it's not necessarily adjacent to Galaxy, I think it's still a, a very valuable type of experience that you were able to get working with the government sector while also trying to show them innovative tech. So could you just share a little bit more about what that platform was like? Yeah, absolutely. And I, again, appreciate that opportunity because I'm also a nerd at heart. And so I, you know, I love, I love geeking out of this kind of stuff. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, now it seems somewhat commonplace. People have heard of IoT and, you know, things like beacons and stuff. It's almost like not antiquated at all, but it's, it's very much background, right? AI is hot and it's all part of the same thing. Back then, it was definitely new. It was nascent space. Um, I, I was really fascinated by, um, by beacons. Um, at the time, only um, Apple had a protocol, right? Which was iBeacon. Google now has one called Eddystone, but it's, it wasn't out at the time, right? So this was like 2013 or so. Essentially, the platform did this thing where we, we created a mobile app that would you know, react with Bluetooth or react with, with beacons. And so essentially, we were wired up things like landmarks and you know, museums and actually airports and, and stuff like that. 
And essentially, if you had the city app of, of, of that city, it would you know, it would bring you a wealth of information. It would be able to ping you whatever, right? just in time type of stuff. And again, now it seems very commonplace. Uh, back then, no one had seen or heard that. And so we were taking over like everything from like advertising concert stuff, advertising, like I think they were doing the Grand Prix and there was a, a European Olympics. So there's a bunch of advertising type of stuff, but it was really like opt-in. People were, you know, excited to see this. They would come up to a landmark and get information, could buy tickets. So it was pretty cool. That transitioned to something that was even cooler, but in the same realm, which was sort of smart venue or smart infrastructure. We did this intranet system. So we used like, you know, we used like, it was as if, as if it was Wi-Fi, but it was, it was a closed loop network. And we put entertainment, we put information. It was kind of like an infotainment system that ended up going into airplanes of all places, airplanes and airports. And uh, it was, again, an intranet that had like a Netflix and a, and a shopping network and kind of as much as you can imagine, almost like, if you remember Sky Mall? Yes. <laughs> it was like a digital Sky Mall, but it had more than, it didn't have like, totes for your your cat it, it had you know like gucci and like it had like really really high-end stuff because the airline was very high-end and so it was really cool to to do that and to kind of stream to your own device i think we were the first group or among the first two groups that were doing streaming to your own device now every of course every airplane and every you know every brand has that but at the time no one did so it was pretty innovative i was pretty proud of that and that's that is what i was trying to pitch to new york and into you know into msg and so on so Maybe just because uh, I inherently and innately know the slow molasses-like process of large bureaucracies. Were you dealing with that when you were pitching this product to like the the city of New York and when you were dealing with large airlines? Yeah, more, more of the city of New York than anything. Well, Eric was a great champion of it. Again, Eric Adams, being the current mayor of New York City, he he was excited about the idea. He you know he was backing it full heartedly, but there was so many levels of bureaucracy beyond him. There's a system in New York called NYC Link. I don't even know if it's like I think it's it's still active. Meaning like there are these weird, you know, these what do you call them machines that are standing all around New York City mm-hmm. that you can technically plug into to charge your phone or touch it. But they've really become like kind of a you know, like homeless and and, and it's 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 really been like not not the most pleasant thing for the for the city, at least not what they what they pictured. And so I was trying to augment that to make it so it's again touch free, right? So people would just be around it, it would create a radius of Wi-Fi, which now it actually does, but a radius. So it got really messy, a lot of partners. When it comes to MSG or or to like groups like that or even airlines, they were it was a lot faster, especially in the Middle East. It was it was actually very, very quick. We we got right to the top. Same thing with quite frankly, same thing with the governments. You know, when you get to the to the level of you know where we were dealing with like at the presidency and and, and that kind of level essentially it opened every door so we were very blessed at that point to at least get that to get that going but then bring us back to reality yes there's a very slow process sales cycles are long i mean i did look at a little bit of your background with being again a planner so i can imagine how cool that would be so ideas are great but then you know adoption is is, is the execution key that that's the challenge yeah, when uh, one of my roles as a planner, we were essentially using technology that was less useful than Excel. And this was to manage all the home data for the homes in the county. And just from my insider perspective, I knew that it would take a decade or longer to get new technology added to the county. Right. So it's always interesting when we hear about these really innovative technologies and then trying to integrate them with governmental processes is just such an uphill battle. The mayor of New York, is this the Eric, he took his, a portion of his salary in Bitcoin? I think that's right. Yeah. I remember seeing the headline when he first started. Yeah. Yeah. That's super cool. So yeah, I guess a lesson learned there is despite the fact that you're working with someone who's super forward thinking in a large bureaucracy, there's still going to be these kind of like slowed down bogged processes. 
And I think I even saw one of those stands that you were talking about the last time I was in New York. And it just so happened that there was a deranged looking person that was trying to use the cell phone option that was on the stand. So it's funny the public goods that we can create and then how they might not necessarily be public goods because not everyone wants to use them. Yeah. So as you're going through your journey and you're creating your builder operator, you're probably focusing more on building a product and then delivering that to your client. But you're also an investor. So I want to pick your brain a little bit. And throughout your journey, can you pinpoint the first time you heard about crypto, Bitcoin, Ethereum, what it was? And if you're anything like me, you probably waved it off and ignored it. Was your story similar to that? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think I first heard about Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, I first heard about that, that, the concept also overseas. And you're 100% right. My reaction was like super interesting, but like I, I was way too you know focused on what I was doing to pay attention. Now there's even things like, I think, what is it called? Citycoin and some other things out there that actually have a ton of relevance with potentially with what I was doing with, you know, with the smart city platform. I think an MSG, and this is not the first time, but an MSG, I think we were visited by consensus and by a couple of groups that were coming in to, to showcase potential use cases of blockchain technologies at that, you know, with that one was Ethereum and, and some others from everything from like, you know, of course, NFTs and collectibles, but also to ticketing and, and all those kinds of use cases that you would imagine with a venue. So I was definitely, again, you know, lucky enough to see that from the lens. I always appreciate and understand that that wasn't anyone showing me that it was, you know, they were trying to sell to MSG. So that was, that was great. I just got to be the steward or in that seat of, you know, making, of not making the decision, but at least obtaining the information. So I got to learn from a lot of, a lot of really smart people. And even those smart people that were in it for, you know, years at the time were saying like, look, every day that I'm in crypto, I feel like I'm five years behind crypto every day. And that was back <laughs> in, like, you know, in 2018, 2017. So, you know, I appreciate them saying that because I had no idea back then. Working with Spencer, the you know the NBA player and the co-founder of Galaxy, incredibly knowledgeable. This is not just like a face to you know to like a project. He very much is deep in the space and very much understands that from a philosophical level all the way to a technical level. So even like sponging off of those conversations, hearing you know kind of what the vision was for his tokenization, and you know quite frankly, you know without naming names, we got like. I don't know, four or five dozen other athletes that wanted to, ju to do the same thing that Spencer did. So we had a bunch of names on a on a LOI type of list of, you know, so there was definitely legs there, but with back to the whole bureaucracy aspect, with regulations being what they were, Spencer went through like, you know, a year, more than a year, year years of uh, deliberation and legal stuff with the NBA, with, you know, the SEC, all that kind of stuff. So he was very much like the, the steward to bring this forth to then, you know, open that door. It still has not come to full, full fruition because, like, not no one's really doing this right now. But I still think that that is a few. There is a future where, where you know, that kind of activity is happening and allowing creators or athletes or whatever to really again benefit and monetize on the bet on themselves and, and get all that value now versus over you know the course of time. Yeah, and just to provide a little bit of context for our listeners, Spencer Dinwiddie plays for the NBA. I believe he joined the league what in 2020, 2021, around there. Uh, he, you know, he joined quite a bit before that, but he kind of, you know, it took him a while to get through the G League and kind of get, you know, build up to what he is today. So, yeah, I think he broke through and had a good great year in 2019, 2020. And then he later said that he was going to use a portion. He was going to convert a portion of his contract into tokens. And I believe that token owners would also be able to claim a portion of his future revenue. That's right. <laughs> okay. Yeah, definitely check it out if, if for your audience that's interested. Check it out. There's plenty of uh, plenty of writings out there on it. But yeah, the the vision was 
give him the contract value today. And it's almost like a bond where you would enjoy upside or even get like dividends every like quarter or something alongside his NBA contract. So it was really betting on himself to almost overcome a certain hurdle rate, which was again, the coupon, not to get too technical, but a certain hurdle rate and what he could do with that, you know, with that capital versus it coming, you know, over the course of time through the NBA contract. And I I know that you're not as representative and you probably can't speak as to the motivations behind it, but, but you did bring up an interesting point relating it to like a bond. And when I start thinking about crypto and DeFi and how we can collateralize certain assets and then start to use them. So was that kind of an impetus behind tokenizing the contract was to be able to have this new kind of liquid asset that could be used in the Web3 space? Yeah. And and I'm not going to sell Spencer short because he does a great job speaking about this and he has a ton of innovative innovative ideas on what this could be. And I've heard him say like, hey, I want to be able to, you know, use a Spencer token to buy a house or to buy bread, like that kind of stuff in the past. The reason it came out the way it came out was he had to make it sort of vanilla. He had to make it the most basic version of it to, for the MBA, the legacy infrastructure to accept it, uh, which I get it, right? I get it from both sides. So yeah, that is, you know, that was at least one of the paths that he was envisioning was this whole new asset class, almost like, I think I've heard him say like real life fantasy sports, right? The idea of like, can you get Spencer circa 2016 or 17 when he was, you know, a rookie or, you know, early in the league or in the G League at like, you know, five cents. And then all of a sudden he's this, you know, sixth man of the year candidate, et cetera, et cetera, you know, doing great in, in the playoffs. And now it's worth, you know, X, you know, X much 10X the, that number or 100X that number. So there was that vision. We did not do that, but that that is exactly there as potential. Excuse me if I sound like a fanboy, but what's it like to kind of work with like a, a rising NBA star? Is there like an ego in the room or is it just like a person to person basis? And it just so happens that since he's so forward thinking and philosophically minded, as well as technically capable to understand these concepts, does that just make him specifically the type of person that's great to be building a product with? So great, great question. I mean, I, you know, not to sit here and blow smoke for Trump Spencer, he, he has enough of it, but he... uh Spencer's, you know, in a sense, is, is a unicorn, right? He, he is a definitely a special type of person and player. When it's the off season and we have more access to him, it's it's excellent, right? I think he he can come into a room completely cold, not in the conversation, take it in for a couple minutes, and then completely give you a great inside point that says, no, you, we should be doing this, or think let's think this way, or have you considered, you know, this? So that's been excellent. Um, ego wise, no. I mean, I, what you would expect to be the case, right? It's not that at all. That easily could be, and I think everyone would understand if it was. But it very much is right. I think he he likes to think of it as a team as well. And he, you know, he, you have our our designer Chad, right? He's like, look, you're the three point specialist, or you're like the LeBron, or whatever. Take your shot. You know, everyone has their role. Like our CEO, right? He he's he's always thinking on the bigger picture and always strategizing. So I think it's like putting the team together. He's been really great at that, and really even just sort of stepping out of the way to let the other team members sort of take their shots, which has been you know we appreciate it and it's excellent. And then the incredible luxury of having you know someone like him to be the dot connector, to be the door opener, to, you know, to allow us to, to get so many more athletes and creators involved in our project, that if it was like, if I was the founder, it would just never be the case, right? It would, it would either never be allowed, or I'd have to use a ton of resources to invest in, in actually, you know, quote unquote, buy these relationships. And even if I was able to do that, it wouldn't be authentic, you know? So like, I think that's one of, you know, not to jump ahead to Galaxy, that's one of Galaxy's biggest advantages sort of organically is that these are authentic relationships. We have not paid anyone to be here, et cetera, et cetera. And that wouldn't be the case if it wasn't for Solo and Spencer. Shout out to Spencer for being a a humble athlete. So this line of questioning is going to lead into more of a a deep dive into Galaxy. But so if I'm just uh, taking a step back, it sounds like you kind of were sold the merits of blockchain technology in the 2017-ish era 
when the company you were working on behalf of, you started having folks bring this into you. I myself am from the crypto class of 2017. I bought my first Bitcoin and Ethereum that summer. But if I'm just going to take an educated guess based off of your background, it sounds like maybe you were too busy building out your platform in 2718 to take the leap. But maybe around 2020 is when you kind of got bit by the bug and kind of jumped into the space. I noticed that uh, in your LinkedIn, there's a little blurb about Dapper Labs, and that seems like your first kind of collaboration with a Web3 type entity. So maybe uh, share what that journey was like the two to three years after you first heard about blockchain. And then what was it in 2020, if I am correct, in your timeline and assuming that that was like, okay, this is the time to jump in. Like, I want to be in Web3. Yeah. So 2020 was the the first sort of larger investment that I made that wasn't just like buying some crypto or some tokens. It was, you know, again, Dapper. Uh, and I'll come to that in a second. I started working with Spencer and his like group or his like small group, probably in I think summer of 2018. So it's been it was predated Galaxy. You know, we were looking at opportunities to invest in from everything from consumer to definitely crypto. I think we looked at like Silo, uh, we looked at you know Foundation, we looked we looked at a lot of a lot of companies, uh, Rally and and so and so on. We looked at a lot of companies. We had again via Spencer and my network, we had great access, so that was that was really beneficial. When the opportunity came along to invest into Dapper Labs, A, it was a no-brainer for me. I'd seen and heard of them from back in, you know, even back in like 2016, 2017, when they were doing CryptoKitties. And I remember looking at that use case for a lot of some a lot of the efforts that we were doing at Madison Square Garden for the future, right? Kind of the digital collectibles, what's important to to like younger audiences. It was more like experiences over over assets and Dapper and CryptoKitties and now NBA Top Shot is kind of a combination of both, right? It is an experience in, in, in a way. Uh, at least CryptoKitties was as you're building up your, you know, your cats and all that kind of stuff and your collections. But it's also an asset, right? It's a digital asset. So it was really obvious to me. And in fact, I remember giving my memo to Spencer and saying, "Dude, you know, he's like, how much should we invest?" I'm like, "As much as you possibly can." <laughs> and, and look, tongue in cheek there. Of course, the the market has been up and down and, and down recently. But there was definitely a moment of time where where the unrealized results were incredible for a while, right? When flow tokens were at the top and when there was talks of, you know, I think like Disney or someone trying to buy Dapper and even their latest round, you know, I think it was like seven and a half billion was the valuation. We came in significantly, you know, before the billions. And and uh, that was, you know, that was, def- I'm still proud of that. I think that there's still potential of that company irrespective of what happens. But yeah, the bug hit me there is like, wow, there's, there's so much here. And in that hype cycle, you know, irrespective of Dapper and sort of the 2020 to 2022 range, right before like the year or so ago that everything kind of slowed down. I mean, you were seeing left and right people just going crazy on these token deals and, you know, crazy valuations. And I think that's where there was both sides of my mouth where my, my brain were working, which is as an operator and as an investor, as an investor, yes, there was a ton of potential for short-term opportunity. At the same time, I knew that the fundamentals were wrong, right? That there was just no way company X or Y is worth that much when you know they just have an idea or a white paper or no clients, no revenue, et cetera, et cetera. So that was it's a challenge, but I understand of what's going on today. And and I think that that makes a lot of sense. And while it's great to build off hype, we've we've enjoyed that ourselves to you know have a lot of investors come in because of the potential and the hype, not because of actuals. But I cannot wait both from Galaxy's perspective to get into the actuals and track records stuff. So it's like, no, no, look, we built this, here it is, check it out, it's working. Uh, look at, you know, people are here and as well as, you know, as I invest kind of being a little, a lot more first principles and more disciplined in terms of that. Not that I wasn't being disciplined, but just, I think it gives everyone in the market, like more awareness to be like, Hey, Hey, hold on, slow down. Seed round shouldn't be at a hundred million dollars in this particular vertical, et cetera. 
Yeah, so I'm hoping this next question I'm asking is poising you to answer as an owner operator and not necessarily to kind of like shine any negative light on the industry. But the metaverse, DAOs, NFTs, these were huge buzzwords in 2020 and in 2021. And these verticals have taken some big hits recently. Like uh, the first example that comes to mind is Zuckerberg's massive losses to the tunes of tens of billions of dollars on his metaverse projects. So I guess um, I'm going to ask like a two-part question and hopefully tee you up for an awesome answer. A, what's it like building a metaverse-oriented or adjacent project in this environment? And then B, can you just tell me why bear markets are the best time for building? Great questions. Great questions, for sure. I think so just like the first, you know, the first portion of your question about metaverses, DAOs, etc. Either way, it's it's still nascent, right? It's, it's just early days. And even though like to people who are in the space, it doesn't feel that way, right? I, I've been talking about metaverse and AR since well before even 2016, you know, and, and, and so on. And I'm sure there's people that are, you know, much before that. Same with like sort of OG crypto people and DAOs. It depends on your intentions and where, and to your point, right? Are you, are you looking at it from a building standpoint? Are you looking at it from an investment standpoint, etc.? So I love the space. It's just early, and in metaverse too. Like I'm a, the biggest sort of bullish, you know, proponent of the space. But until there's until there's mainstream adoption or even the options for the hardware aspect, there's there's no other way to get in. Essentially, right? I mean, you could do it through your phone. There's other things that you can kind of do. But until that happens, it's very difficult. I think there's been really clever web app aspect stuff that that allow you to do like what is it called? Like essentially web 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 AR type of stuff. Which okay, that's fine. But that's not true. That wasn't the origin of what this was supposed to be. <laughs> so we're still building towards that. Your other question around, you know, what is it like building a metaverse product? I mean, metaverse is incredible potential because you're, you know, you're truly building another realm that can twin or dig, you know, be a digital twin or more important, more like excitingly, an overlay over the whole world. If you've never seen that, I think it's called hyper reality. If you type that into you know YouTube, you'll see this like video made quite a while ago. It wasn't like just now, where like it's just someone's experience of like going on a bus and going into a grocery store and and it's it's overwhelming and then actually everything shuts off for a minute. And you see a regular store. I don't know that that's necessarily or like Ready Player One. I don't know if that's necessarily what everyone's going towards. I think there will be common use cases across the board. At the same time, there's so much opportunity for industrial and commercial sort of business use cases in the metaverse. So I'm I'm a big proponent. I've built a couple of things towards that effort. Things like, you know, for for like we call there's a company called Compassion VR that we were starting at one point, which was for I'm not gonna say trouble for, for, for like people like with PTSD and for senior citizens. For groups that have, you know, either issues with with coping with some, you know, with some mental aspect or with like accessibility or even like, you know, distance. So like I'm a great grandparent. I'm sitting in a, in a, in a retirement home. I can't go to my kid's birthday or, or my, my grandkid's birthday or whatever. But this allows you to be in that place or feel like it or even just tourism. So we did a lot of things for vulnerable populations. Love that effort. And I still think it's going to be huge. So that's that's one thing. And then building in a bear market. Sorry, that took so long to get to that question. <laughs> it's all good. I mean, it really depends whether it's a bull market or a bear market for you as a builder or an entrepreneur. It just really depends on your individual situation. You might have if it's you and if you're a developer or you have a you know a co-founder that's an engineer, you might not matter, right? It's just your time at that point. Maybe it's the difficulty of of getting, you know, getting funding. And in that case, if, if it's a bear market and it's difficult to get funding, then it's just difficult no matter what. It just depends on the composition of your team, right? If, if you were reliant on getting funding to then go hire an engineer because you have an idea, that can be very difficult. At the same time, there's maybe less expectations in a bear market, especially on the crypto side, right? I think the, the, the bar is, is lower to some degree to what you are expected to do um, when you actually hit market. So that's probably a, a bit of a benefit. But otherwise, I don't know that for an entrepreneur, it matters short of a huge X factor, which is funding, right? If you can't get funding and you can't build because you don't have an engineer on your team, 
that is a massive challenge. And when you flip it, then it's actually really great for you because you can sit there and build as long as you want and start start kind of promoting yourself as someone building during this time in difficult times. But does that affect you on valuation? I mean, there's all these other things to kind of factor in, right? Maybe you would have gotten a much better valuation right off the bat based on it being a bull market versus a bear market. But I, I think at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. You know, if you're building, you're building something that you think is going to be huge, not a little bit okay. So yeah, I love that example that you just used uh, for Compassion VR. Again, you know, we both kind of come from a realm where we were building, well, you were building for the urban fabric of like cities and things like that. And Um, When I was studying urban planning, there was the overlay of three specific areas, environment, economics, and social good. So to hear that, you know, you're still building these products for social good on the side are are really interesting. But I think uh, despite the negative headlines, and you did a great job of washing past Facebook's or Meta's current loss on their metaverse investments, but you're right. This technology, we've been talking about it for six plus years. I mean, if you look back at The Sims, the video game, that's been around since what, like 2000? Like we've been playing in the metaverse. Millennials have been playing in the metaverse. Gen X has been playing in the metaverse. It's just now we have a time, a way to tokenize it and to add assets. I think you wanted to add something. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd love to. Yeah, I didn't mean to skip over the meta question and, and great call out on, Sim, on Sims. I think even going back beyond that, SimCity was one of my first like video game loves. Maybe it's not exactly fair because I think, you know, like Mario and some stuff back in the in the, on the console days, but on the computer, man, SimCity was excellent. I still love those types of games. Civilization, SimCity, like anything like Age of Empires, I haven't played forever, but I love those games. On the meta front, I think it's, again, it's all relative. Like, yeah, they lost a billion or 10 billion or, you know, whatever the number may or may not be. I think it's all relative. I'm not trying to water that down. That is obviously from their, their investors' perspective, a, a very large miss to, to a degree. I, I don't think it's a miss. I think that it's just, again, an early cycle towards that effort, right? They happen to own Oculus. Right? So I think they're one of the people that will actually be able to propagate the hardware for the adoption to come. People that are in there, like, you know, whether it's single digit thousands or tens of thousands or whatever that number actually is, they're great early adopters, but it's that whole like pioneers versus settlers thing. It will come. Like, just like Facebook and social media arrived at the time, and now everyone has, you know, social accounts. This is going to be the future. I think it just needs to decide. I mean, Apple coming out with, the Vision Pro is a huge, huge step, but similar to like Microsoft's HoloLens, I think the Vision Pro is going to be almost like a dev kit. It's going to be fun for consumers. There's a lot of application and it's already like polished, not like the the HoloLens wasn't quite the same. But I think when we get down to a different size factor of actual glasses or, or, or contact lenses or whatever the heck it's going to be, or even something different, that's when you can actually get into mainstream adoption because it doesn't look ridiculous. You're wearing a giant thing on your head, etc. It still works, but it just it's got to become more socially acceptable and, and convenient. Yeah. And let me just caveat all that with I'm just using a single data point that represents just a moment in time. You know, if in 2018 or at the end of 2018, I told you I bought Bitcoin at $17,000 and it was then $3,000, you'd be calling me an idiot. Right. But here we are six years later and you would be dying to buy Bitcoin at $17,000. So I'm just, you know, being a little cheeky, let's recognize the nuance that yes, this is just a data point. But if we zoom out, and take a longer time perspective, then yes, the metaverse and these types of tools and technologies are, are more likely going to be integrated into uh, mainstream adoption. And something that I'm really interested to chat with you about actually is how is the sports industry kind of intertwining with the metaverse? And this is going to eventually lead into to Galaxy and the work that you guys are doing. But something that was really 
pivotal or monumental, depending on how you choose to look at it. A few weeks ago here in the U.S., the Major League Baseball had the All-Star Game weekend, and that weekend they debuted the virtual park. Are you familiar with this launch? And if you are, or maybe not, uh, just share some of your industry insight. Why is MLB launching a virtual park kind of like a significant moment as we trudge closer and closer towards mainstream adoption? Great question and awesome use case. And yeah, I am familiar. Love what they were doing at that front. I think sports brings such a great opportunity for like a completely non-technical audience, right? A mainstream audience to all of a sudden be aware, let alone actually engage with this kind of emerging technology. MLB doing what it's, and I'll come back to that part, but MLB doing what it's doing is to me, not a surprise. I think MLB has been a great pioneer for a long, long time. I mean, I think they were the first sports League to stream and, and so on and so forth with MLB BAM Tech. I know that's been divested or they sold it to, to Disney or whatever has happened since, but the group has always been very innovative. I think like the fan base traditionally being a little bit older, especially comparatively speaking to the NBA and the NFL, this is again, yet another great step to tap into the world of like a much younger audience, right? Gaming and, and metaverse, et cetera, really will open that door. I, I, have, I happen to have a, a kid who's about to be five. My oldest is about to be five. And he is in the last, I don't know, maybe six months or so or three months, like like that short of time where it's sharp on my mind right now, enamored with baseball. Like right? he's been watching, you know, he want much more than I, like I'm a, I'm a Seattle Mariners. I watch the scoreboard and watch some stuff when I have time. He watches every game and watch, sees everything and tells me stuff every single day. And so like for him to be able to get into like a virtual stadium is incredibly exciting if I'm able to give him a headset or whatever to d- dive into it. He loves it. He literally watches YouTube video clips of like, like a Nintendo Wii, you know, baseball or some other thing called like baseball night all, all the time, stuff that I don't even know about. And I, I like to think of myself as being on, you know, up to up to date with, with tech and everything going on. And he's like, oh, daddy, check this out. So I think it's a great step to connect with the younger audience. And it, I think it will be fruitful, even if it takes a number of years. And then sports overall, you know, at MSG, we were investors in the company that I think was bought by Apple since then, but a company called NextVR. And the promise was kind of as straightforward and simple as any mainstream person can understand, which is, it's, you know, being in the front row in your in your living room, right? So the idea was you could sit courtside and have that view from your living room, whether it's in a headset or even the stream, like on your TV. That's what NextVR was doing for sports, for concerts, for like NASCAR, for kind of everything. And what a great idea, like just in general, right? I think that was super in, 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 uh, innovative and uh, immersive. And it allowed you to sit, you know, again, courtside in a suite, front row, like, you know, various, various perspectives in the venue. I think, again, that's all coming, right? I think that that will open up the doors. And while a little bit of a double-edged sword, because traditionally teams and leagues have always battled the living room or the couch, right? They want people to come. At the same time, now with TV contracts, they don't need people to come. Like, it's, it's kind of one, you know, they capture their revenue no matter what. And quite frankly, whenever they can go to like a more a la carte type of option. So I pay whatever, like $25 for a month for my MLB.TV thing. If I can do that across, you know, my teams that I like and pay them a dollar per view or some total per season they already have more revenue anyway. So like that's all coming. And I think it's an exciting use case because I happen to be a sports fan, so I'm biased. But yeah, that, that will, you know, things like that, whether it's sports or even sort of pop culture or social stuff, can you, you know, can you watch the Oscars, or the Grammys through this kind of thing? Can you watch a reality TV show through this type of perspective, et cetera? It honestly will change how content is made in the future. Right? Can movies be made in a different way where it's choose your own adventure or interactive or walkthrough? And that, again, not a novel concept that's been around. Again, look at MSG Sphere. I think that's going to be its own medium and its own, like, I think we call, you know, we call it a canvas. You're going to experience something almost like you're at Universal or Disney in, in a ride 
going through an immersive experience, blasting off into space or going underwater or whatever the experiences will be, not just watching a concert. So very excited about the space overall. If you can't, if you can't tell by my voice. <laughs> you kind of got me excited there for a moment because uh, I'm a South Florida sports fan. I'm not like an NFL fan or an MLB fan. I like my team. So if I could buy a package where I'm only watching Miami play for MLS or the Dolphins play for the NFL or the Marlins play for MLB, that right there would sell me. I don't, I don't care because now I have something to talk about with my family every week when these games are on. I can reach out to my dad who lives in another part of the country and now we have another reason to chat. Kind of like taking a step back from Web3 because Galaxy is also very much in the social media world. So I kind of want at like a high level, just want to hear your perspective on what is like the future of social media and engaging with followers or friends or whatever you want to call them online. What's the killer use case that's going to bring Web3 to the mainstream through social media? And I'm specifically, I want to put this on your radar using threads. Mm -hmm. Threads seem to have a shot to take Twitter out. And for like a week, there was 100 million downloads. And now we see threads kind of dying off a little bit, not so much activity. So what's the role for innovation in social media when we have like behemoths like Twitter and Facebook that are already, already here? Maybe this is an impossible question to ask you, but I would love to hear your answer. How do we disrupt these like large behemoths that already exist today? To me, and I'm not necessarily some overall expert on you know the broader space, but you know, as a user, as a human, let alone as someone operating sort of a emerging, you know, social and marketplace company. So to, I guess I have to be put myself in that in that position. So the realm that's like peer to peer, so like sort of Facebook when it was just, you know, me and my friends or me and my family, I think that that's sort of one column, right? And that's, that's one thing. And then the other side is like the the nature of the dynamic of following a creator, following someone, you know, following someone that's actually you know, an influencer, a creator, an athlete, whatever that is. That's the realm I'm going to speak towards more, right? Not, not, not the former. And I, th I think quite frankly, it's, what drives everyone is, is you know, content is king, right? Not a new statement, but what drives everyone is is those creators, the people that you like to follow, right? Maybe it's an athlete, maybe again it's a it's a lifestyle, whatever, right? Influencer, whoever it might be, it might be Elon Musk, like you know, whoever it might be, you're gonna follow that person sort of wherever they put their content out to a degree. I, I think like the former President Trump having to launch a whole new platform versus kind of what you know getting kicked off of Twitter, different angle, right? That, that, that I'm not that's a little bit of an extreme. But let's take it, you know, take it to a little more in the norms where if I'm watching, you know, if I'm you're in Denver, right? So like if Russell Wilson is tweeting and I'm a follower of Russell Wilson, I'm going to go and watch, you know, listen and read his tweets if they're on Twitter or if they're on Instagram or wherever the heck he's posting. And so that's a little bit of our, our core, which is can you give shift the power and the authenticity and, and all the, the tools back to the creator so that way they can connect with their audience? Because that's sort of the more natural thing happening anyway. Me as a platform, I don't want to get in your way and put like ads in front of you or essentially monetize on your data. That's the traditional playbook and it works clearly, right? We have, to your point, behemoths in the space operating that way. But what always gets me is like, there's a ton of unrealized value for that creator that's that's being gobbled up by the platform, by like the man in this case, right? And so like, uh, I look at like Joe Rogan, right? So Joe Rogan got that big contract with Spotify what, a number of years ago. And seemingly enormous, or was it 250 or 200 million, whatever the heck it was over a number of years. And yet that seemed like this big deal, but clearly Spotify perceived much more value in him. Otherwise, why would they do that as a business? And I think that came true. I think their their stock price jumped or their, you know, their their value jumped by like eight billion dollars that day that that was announced. So like that's always the case. And you every time you examine that, whether it's you know, promote like a 
like a marketing promotion or like some, you know, a brand paying a, a creator for for a post or whatever, whatever they're paying them, clearly there's, you know, a number X more value for them to to realize. Otherwise they wouldn't be paying them. It wouldn't make sense for anyone to do that. And so I think like that little portion, not to get so technical in an answer that we could have gotten, you know, a little bit more mainstream with, but that portion of value is where I think we can disrupt and actually bring over the creators to actually have them, you know, be valuable. And not that we need, it's not mutually exclusive. We don't need them to leave other platforms. We need them to use that as distribution, quite frankly. But we want them to realize that, hey, on Galaxy, you can do anything you want. You are going to have a much bigger cut. And overall, like it's it's your platform. It's your thing. You, you know, you're going to actually realize more and more, you know, profits and monetization and kind of do whatever you want, flexibility. We're not going to deplatform you. We're not going to take more and more or put ads in front of your people. It's your data. It's your audience, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm happy to unpack that more. I didn't mean to go so technical there. No, that was great. I want to put a pin in the bringing an audience to a platform because you're right. I'm going to listen to Joe Rogan on iTunes or on Spotify. Or if he says something that's covered in CNN, I'm going to read his quote because it's just a person of interest today. So I want to put a pin in that and then kind of use uh, the next question or two to talk about the technology that enables this. And so when I think of Web3, is it's the key value prop is the ability to own your own data. Mm-hmm. So in this instance, let's say I want to leave Twitter and go to a to another social media platform. It would be great if I could just bring all of my followers from Twitter onto the new social media platform. That doesn't exist right now, but we're moving towards a future where that could exist. And I believe that this is the type of functionality that Galaxy will enable or spur on or offer. But to kind of like just take a quick second and look into a little bit of the technological aspect, you're a builder, you're also a VC guy, you're also creating a platform that you're operating, but technologies are very important. And in the past few years, I've noticed that, especially since you know our genesis in 2017, there's become more and more L1s. So from your perspective and all these hats that you wear and the conversations you're having with VCs and other builders and content creators and things like this, what's just your your view on the multi-chain thesis? Is there going to be one chain that rules them all? Or when people are looking at what blockchain network to use for their product, what really matters when they're evaluating blockchains? I'm personally a believer that, that you know, I'm a believer in interoperability. I don't know in the future, if, if we all boil down to one chain, unless it was like, with the consensus adopted that way, it seems to be kind of like antithetical to to decentralization, right? That's a pretty centralized chain if there's only one. <laughs> it's a similar thought to like, you know, even like, you know, like the federal currency, like reserve currency, that kind of idea to where all of a sudden there's the digital dollar and now, you know, USDC, USDT, any kind of stable coin is not needed. And that might be okay if like we're just pinned to the dollar. But anyway, I digress from that portion. So yeah, I think, you know, technology, of course, is the backbone of all of this. But the key and the secret is to how do you get it out of the way, right? Because again, most mainstream people are not, they don't know what a MetaMask is. They don't want to deal with the extension browser or like wallet, like all this kind of stuff is too, too much initially, let alone the way that it currently is set up with like passphrases and like all the things that you need to do that is very different than just, you know, pin code or, or, or a email password. Although, you know, we're doing that too. We let our are charged with UX, meaning we want to be the interface, the easiest interface and the most beautiful interface for anything Web3, right? We, we want to build a product that is completely chain agnostic. So we want to work with Flow and with Polygon and with you know Solana and so on and so forth. We're, we're proudly built on Hedera, right? A, a chain that is maybe less, less heard about right now, but there are reasons for that and I can unpack that. 
but yeah, so we, we did it through a lens of design. So our UX is, is built in a certain way that's very familiar to Web2. It's very similar to like a Twitter, Instagram type of feel. And it's very intuitive to where like, instead of, for example, I could send you crypto or your money, I guess, but I could send you fiat or let's just say USDC or, or ETH or whatever. And I don't need to go like find your wallet address and, you know, type in some long password. I could just do a name service and say, you know, at Dylan or whatever your username might be and send it to you that way through DM. So like we put a whole engine, you know, kudos to both the vision of, of our two founders, Solo and Spencer, and to our chief design officer, Chad, for bringing that to life in such a way where it's just easy to use for most people that are just not native crypto enthusiasts. And that that's like one of our sort of special sauces is through UX. Otherwise, you have to sit there and educate. And I don't know that most mainstream creators necessarily care. It's just kind of not the right approach or strategy to say, hey, you know, being on chain gives you all these benefits or like instant payouts. They just want to hear the bottom lines of like, okay, it works. You can get, you know, you can get paid really quickly. You can easily do all these things, video calls, whatever. And it's just kind of keeping it at that simple level and then letting everything else be under the hood. This, that, that's been our approach. Yeah, it's uh, it's like a website creator in the 90s, right. just creating a website as opposed to saying, this is TCP IP and this is why you need to use this protocol. And then here's my website. You can use my website on this as well. So that was a great response. And I think we'll get into a little bit more about why you guys chose Hedera, which if I'm being honest, I thought that that was like a private consortia chain. So to hear that there's a public network is really interesting. And we'll get into that as to why Galaxy built on that first. So to kind of launch you into what Galaxy is, let's uh, start with a broader question and then we'll use Galaxy as the context for this. So what's your perspective on the future of the outlook of the creative economy and how is Galaxy kind of building to meet that niche? In my opinion, the future of the creative economy needs to be sort of almost obviously creator-centric, right? It needs to be empowering creators to do what they do best, right? And again, content is king. People, it's amazing what you find online, right? It, it could literally be someone just jamming on a guitar or playing the drums on, you know, Reddit TV. If I think that that product's been sunset, but, you know, something like that, or, you know, and getting their tips or whatever, or there's everything all the way out to like OnlyFans and, and all these other platforms that are, you know, maybe not safe for work type of content, adult content. So at the end of the day, what you said earlier is exactly what resonates, which is, can you take your data and your audience with you? Can you easily promote to them? There's things like Linktree out there and there's, you know, ways to consolidate, but there is no cohesive, clean, you know, one-stop shop, which is what Galaxy is building towards and what what we want to be, right? We want to be the de facto place to monetize. We want to help creators professionalize being a creator and we want to make monetization like turnkey and easy and simple and not get cumbersome or in the way. And so by empowering them to, again, with simple interfaces and easy to use things to enable things like subscriptions or fan clubs, to enable like one-time transactions, videos or DMs, or again, quite frankly, one of my favorite things is, is both, we have kind of both ends of the spectrum, which is special requests or featured experiences. It's really similar things. It just depends on who's asking, right? So we have this thing called special request. It allows you as a fan to ask your you know, creator to anything that you want or, or request anything that you want with uh, some kind of min- minimum barrier. So like they might say, hey, for $1,000 or more, you can ask me to come to your house or like whatever, right? Be a DJ at my, at my birthday party, whatever the heck it might be. And then on the flip side is we allow creators to completely create custom experiences. So like Spencer could be like, hey, I'm doing a camp. But let me shoot you how to, you know, how to shoot a jump, teach you how to shoot a jump shot. We have like chefs and comedians that could do kind of anything they want. So it takes it out of the box of like, hey, this is a video call or like, you know, kind of a cameo product, or this is purely uh, like a subscription type of thing. So it allows them to be creative. I'm looking at like Mr. Beast and like creators like that that are doing giveaways and like incredible things. So really empowering them to, to take it and run and for us to just to kind of get out of the way and just keep putting in more and more tools. So like you mentioned, you know, chain agnostic, we want to have 
many front doors. So we want to have various wallets or, you know, being able to pay with Bitcoin or ETH or whatever, being able to mint NFTs or we call them digital collectibles across any chain or sell them in multiple places. Can you sell merchandise? Like you might want to just sell t-shirts or posters. Great. And then right away, we give you an easy click, you know, one click ad to do the digital twin or the you know, digital collectible of that shirt or that poster or whatever the heck it is you're selling. So it's just simplifying with a little bit of education along the way and then letting sort of the the effect of gravity or the tide, you know, kind of take its turn and, and, and start start building that avalanche. Yeah. So Galaxy is an open social marketplace. So if I'm just going to try to comprehend, internalize what this service is going to offer is A, it's going to be kind of like a, an ability for me to connect with my favorite athlete or musician. And that could be by direct DMs or um, I forget what the name of the video service is, but you can hire like an actor to speak for a minute to like give your friend a birthday wish while wishing. So it's going to provide something like that. But then also you're talking about digital collectibles. So there's also going to be this NFT element. So there's a way to connect with the star power. Mm-hmm. There's a way to transact digital collectibles that are associated with that. What about like integrating the game experience itself? Am I going to be able to buy tickets to go to one of these games? Uh, we were talking about the virtual park earlier. Is there a world where I'm able to buy a physical ticket or a digital ticket to be able to attend the game in VR? Maybe just kind of like add in some additional elements of the social marketplace that you haven't already brought up. What are some other unique and innovative ways that users are going to be able to connect with their favorite teams and players in Galaxy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So ticketing is definitely a very, you know, very like big use case that will we believe is, you know, part of the future. We enable it for for it to work for like the leagues and MLB, right? We have to partner with the leagues and MLB, which we have had lots of conversations with all the leagues, with colleges, etc. So I think that is very much a potential that, you know, we we will be exploring at the same time with individuals who have like ticketing needs, meaning like a comedian who's doing a tour, right? Like that kind of stuff. An influencer that might be showing up at a club or at something along those lines where, you know, promoters. So we actually have a whole tool set that's building towards tickets where, again, under the hood, the ticket's actually kind of an NFT. Above, you know, for the user's perspective, it doesn't really matter. You can just take out your phone, boom, here's your ticket. We want to allow creators to sell anything they want. So again, back to the physical merch or posters, or in this case, tickets, by all means, yes, right? If, you, if you're part of the fan club, you get a chance to go to the show or whatever the heck it is. It still all boils back down to not our strategy, but really the creator's strategy. And while we have plans and thoughts on how to raise the t- you know, rise the tide there and, and help everyone understand the potential, we're you know we've, th- we've thought about doing things and we're going to do things like creator houses or like galaxy cons where creators can flourish and do their thing and learn more and, and really just engage. But the idea is the sky's the limit; they can, can really do anything. And so we bottom line is we want to be the everything app. I mean, if you've seen a lot of the press that you know x or twitter has been getting and some of the stuff that they're talking about with elon musk's vision we love seeing that because it validates the broader idea you know wechat exists that kind of stuff so we want to be very much this whole like one-stop shop everything place for a creator to to take everything that they do and, and house it here we don't need you to leave all your other platforms we don't care about that but we think that the evidence will be in your experience and you're just going to like doing that and therefore you will you will naturally just adopt but yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's a lot more, but that that is exactly the right the right theme that you're talking about. Yeah, it's interesting to hear that you're trying to build um, kind of like a, a catch-all app. You know, it seems like America is the last region of the world to adopt these super apps. You know, we've had we have WeChat in China, and and there are a lot of other super apps that are kind of popping up around the world. Mobile users want a one-stop shop to be able to communicate with folks, but to also pay for their groceries. 
So it's it's really interesting to build that, but for the creative industry, and of course, creative can in- include you know musicians, athletes, content creators, things I'm probably not even thinking of that you guys have brainstormed for users and use cases. So something that I make my bread and butter by covering the Neo blockchain every day. So I cover dApps that are using this particular blockchain network. And I'm in my own little silo. Like I, I know what I know about our blockchain and that's that. But I'm curious to hear what are the types of conversations you're having out there? Like, why did you guys choose to build on Hedera? You've mentioned Flow. So why are you guys talking about Flow? What are some other popular blockchain networks that are being discussed amongst your peers of VCs and uh, new product builders? Right. Yeah. Again, great line of questioning. That's the theme today, too. Again, both as an investor and as an operator, I never want, I don't want to see network lock. That doesn't make sense to me. Like if, you know, if I want, if I see a great company and they're building on a particular chain that seems to be like, you know, maybe not the primary chain or like the most popular one. Now I have to factor in this whole new line of, of, of sort of diligence that's like, well, are they ever going to get out of that chain? Is that chain going to open up? Is there going to be opportunities for them to go more mainstream because they're built on chain X or whatever? So that that is a reality currently. I think we need to go beyond that. We we again fortunate enough with Spencer being the co-founder, we had conversations with everybody in the beginning that we were not to say that we were being like courted, but yeah, we kind of were we kind of were being courted to a degree. We could have built anywhere. We were we're fortunate enough to receive investments from actually a couple of different chains too, with groups like Polygon as well. So it's not like we're fully siloed. Uh, we're also validators on a bridge that goes from Ethereum to Polygon and to Hedera called Hashport. And so, you know, we're, we're very much in that vision. We chose Hedera for a number of reasons. Part of them, you know, again, Spencer was the last decider on these things, but part of it was like a combination of factors of trust and stability of, of the chain. You kind of mentioned you thought they were a closed enterprise chain, et cetera. That's because they have something called their governing council with very large companies on that governing council that people would be really shocked about to hear that, you know, like Google or groups like that, you know, Deutsche Telekom, et cetera, are part of the governing council of this chain that they might never have heard of. So I think that gave us a lot of trust and, and belief in the future of, of this chain of what it could do. Also, it happened to be like at the time, I think it was carbon neutral. And now I think it's carbon net negative. The payouts and the stability of the thing, everything is instant. We knew the fees, you know, in, in a world where no one has ever had to pay for social, like social media, and especially like with regards to gas fees. In our world, that kind of is the case, sort of, and not to go too deep on that side. But like we wanted to make sure that those fees aren't ridiculous. You buy an NFT for $100 and, you know, on, on Ethereum and the, the fees might be $30 or $40 in addition to that. So we wanted to avoid that. And, and uh, Hedera allowed for that to be the case because they have, you know, a stable, I think it's like a decade long schedule of what their fees look like, et cetera, et cetera. So that was all part of it, right? So reliability, scalability, et cetera. So there was a number of factors. Plus being a bigger fish in a smaller pond also has its benefits, right? We are one of the larger products on on the on the, net, on the Hedera network on the chain, they you know they love us, we love them, we have good support from them. So it's not like we we're just sort of one of many on a different bigger chain. We have like white glove service and attention from like the founders of this chain, and so that's a huge benefit on, on its own right as well. The wider audience and fan base of Hedera is actually quite larger than most people think, and they're very you know very active and rabid. Perfect. It sounds like a lot of angles have been addressed. So you're providing this niche of connecting consumers with creators, whether it's a fan of a sports star or a musician. You've chosen a technology based off of whether it's going to provide you the needs of essentially cheap network activity. Also, I can really appreciate the fact that you're building in a smaller pond. That is a selling point that I've used for folks to come over and build in our ecosystem as well. 
So you have kind of all of this going on. You've been building this platform for two and a half, three years now. And I think wrapping up and kind of zooming out, what is it that gets people interested in platforms like this? And I'm just going to go ahead and interject my own thought. It's getting big brand names, getting big brand people to start using this platform and to start, quote unquote, marketing it for you. So maybe as we kind of uh, wrap this conversation up and before we go on to what are the next steps for Galaxy, can you talk a little bit more about the names of athletes and entertainers that people might know that you guys have started collaborating with as you started this push to bring Galaxy out into the mainstream? Yeah, absolutely. I'm admittedly not the person that generally deals with the creators. For the most part, we have, you know, again, Spencer, Solo, Baba. We've got people in-house that, again, are in that circle, which just changes the calculus. We're very fortunate. I think we've got well over hundreds and hundreds. I want to say it's three, four, maybe even 500 at this point. Creators that have committed to being on our platform, their overall reach is well over 300 million collectively, right? So it's a big number to start from. I've never had such a platform to jump off of as a, as a startup. So I think, that, again, that's a, that's a really unique advantage. You know, what you mentioned a moment ago in your interjection was exactly correct. We, we're not, our strategy initially is not to go out there and say, hey, Galaxy is here, sign up for Galaxy. I mean, sure, there will be some of that, but that's not, we don't think that's going to be like our number one go to market or lead, right? I think it is very much the creators themselves, content is king, the creators themselves promoting themselves, they're not promoting even Galaxy, they're promoting whatever it is that their activities or their experiences that they're putting out there is. It just has, so happens to be living on Galaxy and therefore, you know, one thing leads to another. So that's, that, that is one of our approaches. Names that I could drop. I mean, there we have you know musicians like Tiana Taylor and you know, her husband Iman Shumpert. We've got, I think at one point we had uh, both the the Bachelor at the time was Matt James, uh, so it was a year ago. But the the Bachelor as well as the guy who won Dancing with the Stars, who I just mentioned, Iman Shumpert, right? So we we have quite a bit of that. We have like I think some Real Housewives. We've got uh, a bunch of athletes, as you can imagine, Dwight Howard, obviously Spencer, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There, there's quite a bit of names, and there's much more coming. And we're talking to like large agencies as well that would in one swoop, you know, quadruple 5x, 10x our numbers just from an agency coming in. So that's that's also a big X factor for us. You know, we hope that there's something for everybody. Again, I mentioned we have chefs and and, and comedians and, you know, and like fitness people and beauty people, etc. So it really is on every spectrum. We have crypto people, it just to each their own. And I think that that's what the diversity is what will allow us to win and let those people do their thing and bring their own communities in. So Galaxy will be launching soon. What are the next steps for Galaxy? And it sounds like you guys have a wide variety of creators that you're already collaborating with, but who else do you want to hear from? So what are the next steps for Galaxy and what projects or people are you interested in hearing from? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, we're working to launch imminently. Uh, so it should be, in, you know, in the, we'll be making some announcements in the coming weeks, uh, maybe shorter. So stay tuned. <laughs> yes, it's a long time coming. We've been building and we're very excited. Uh, in terms of collaboration and you know who we'd love to hear from, I mean, really anyone that's an aspiring or an established creator, we want you to come and, and check us out and you know kind of see for yourself and see what the, what the what the fuss will all be about and really get get a good feel. Uh, we think that we will be the best platform for you to achieve and, and reach all of, all of your goals, kind of thing. And I, I, it's coming from me, it sounds so funny because I feel like if Solo was here or, or Spencer, they would say it much more organically and much differently to say like this is the spot. Like you'll see, you know, I don't say less because it's coming. So I just I always find myself funny when I actually try to give reasonings and explainings as to why, you know, why you should come here. But I think again, the evidence will be in in the platform. It will be engaging, it will be beautiful, it'll be easy to use. And people, you know, I hope people will like it and I'm excited to hear feedback. Also very excited to hear, you know, actually from brands. We have some brands that will be checking us out and kind of piloting with us. But I think this is a great thing for like the future of loyalty and, and the loyalty 3.0, if you will. So there's a lot more to unpack there. But yeah, that's kind of in a nutshell what I'm thinking. 
Yeah. Don't worry if you don't have your marketing pitch down. You're the strategy guy. You're not the chief marketer. So so don't worry about that. Well, this was a great conversation. It was fantastic to dig into your knowledge set and into a lot of the great things you're doing at Galaxy, as well as to address how modern technological shifts have made it possible to empower your users. So if people want to keep up to date with you, Rusty, or they want to follow or touch base with Galaxy, what are the best socials for them to do that at? Yeah, appreciate it. And again, thank you for having me. Yeah, please follow at Galaxy app uh, on all the platforms. You know, we'll, we'll be around again. Stay tuned for upcoming announcements. Uh, personally, at Rusty Matby, if you could find me on Twitter or LinkedIn. But no, overall, I'm exci- excited for people to see us and to, and to actually get, you know, real reactions and, and all that good stuff. And again, thank you so much for having me. I very much enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, likewise. And uh, everyone, keep your ears to the ground for Galaxy. It may have launched by the time you hear this episode, maybe not, but we'll be getting there around quarter three, quarter four this year. So thank you so much for joining, Rusty. It was a great conversation. Thanks, Dylan. Cheers. Well, what did you think of that conversation? I thought Rusty's background was super diverse and is a perfect fit for a burgeoning social media app that's addressing the creative, entertainment, sports, and content industries. Rusty's connection to MSG Sphere, you know, the large dome-shaped venue that recently opened in Las Vegas. Well, it feels super relevant because we're continuing to trudge toward this day-to-day existence where our digital and physical worlds will be intertwined. It was interesting to hear how Galaxy is skating to where the puck is going by building a platform where big names can monetize their likeness with digital assets, but also connect with their super fans in a way that's more immersive than ever before. On that note, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support the show, please keep Neo News Today in mind when voting for your Neo Council representative as part of NEO's governance process. We appreciate you and look forward to catching you next time.